welcome to the Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Lorraine Murphy, a professor of English at Hillsdale College. She's podcasted with us many times previously, most recently on the essays of Addison and Steele, but also on Jane Austen, Daniel Defoe, and The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. She joins us in the studio as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Lorraine, welcome back to the Great Books Podcast. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you, John. Why is The Wings of the Dove by Henry James a great book? It's a great book for many of the reasons that James is a great writer. Like all of his great works, including Turn of the Screw, it's an intense exploration of the human psyche, of the mind and the heart, and this is couched within a dramatic plot that takes some very surprising turns. But most of all, I think it's a great book because it has something profound to say about the relationship between matter and spirit, not only in our common experience of life, but also in terms of the power of literature to study the realm of matter in a way that points to the realm of spirit. I think this is most deeply what makes it a great book. We're going to talk about all that, the plots, the, the people that inhabit the plots, the, the themes, the, the setting of Venice. A lot of the book takes place in that great European city and a lot more. Lorraine, let's just start at the beginning. This book kicks off with us meeting in Chapter 1, Kate Croy, as she waits for her father, and she's annoyed it's taking him so long to show up. I think maybe sometimes fathers are waiting for their daughters. This is a daughter's waiting for her dad, and she's annoyed it's taking him so long. Who is Kate Croy, and what's going on? When we meet her, she's, I think, a very um, appealing and sympathetic young woman. Her father, it emerges, is a bit of a wastrel, and... And she is feeling quite keenly that her family is down on its luck. She's lost her mother recently. Her father survives. Her two brothers have both died young. And the interesting thing about her father is that he has done something dishonorable far back in the past. This gradually emerges. It's not there in the first chapter, although it helps to explain the tensions of the first chapter. He's, he's committed some dishonorable act. I'll say more about that later, perhaps. Kate has come to him um, in order to make him an offer. She says, I'll come live with you, um, and we'll do our best to get through the world together, to get through life together. She feels that that is the dutiful and indeed the honorable thing for her to do. But meanwhile, Kate's Aunt Maud, who is a, a wealthy and pretty socially elite woman, would like to adopt Kate and... Um, try to launch Kate's fortunes in the world in a way that certainly will not happen if Kate remains and lives with her father. So Kate is at this critical turning point. She faces a choice, and she offers to her father to come and live with him. He turns her down. He says, no, absolutely not. You need to go out into the world and do absolutely the best that you can for yourself socially and financially. So Kate turns away from that conversation in the first chapter, having reached a great decision. One of the things Kate is going to need is a husband. And our next major character, I suppose there are three really big major characters in this book. Our next one is Merton Densher. Who is he? He's uh, a very handsome young man. He's a journalist. Uh, He doesn't have much he doesn't have a penny to his name. 
but he's very much in love with Kate, and Kate's very much in love with him. And so in the opening scenes of the novel, the relationship between them is unfolded, and we see how, how very much they admire one another, how very close they are. Um, Denture is ready to marry Kate any time, but Kate says to him and to the reader, I want and I shall try for everything. And what she means is that she wants to maintain her aunt's approval of her, her aunt's guardianship, and the prospect, of course, of becoming her aunt's heiress. But at the same time, she doesn't want to let go of Merton Denter. She wants to find a way to both maintain and perhaps even increase her social standing in London and also maintain her love for Merton Denture and eventually marry him. That's the great game that she plays. That's how she sets out into the into this novel. We're getting a glimpse then of English class consciousness in a way that an American reads this and says, you're in love, go get married, right? That's the American way of doing things. But in London, things are different, at least for these folks. Absolutely. Now into this romance, this potential marriage, this coupling between Merton Densher and Kate Croy, a third character enters the book. Her name is Millie Thiel. Who is she? She's a young woman, Kate's age, or a little younger. Uh, she too has lost most of her family. Well, indeed, uh, Kate still has a father and an aunt. Millie has no one. She's immensely wealthy. Her family has been wealthy, and she has inherited all of that wealth. Um, and she has come um, to Europe and ultimately meets Kate in London with a female guardian, a kind of older single woman who serves as her companion. The interesting thing is that Merton Denture, the journalist, while on a visit to the United States, has met Millie in New York. Millie doesn't know that Merton knows Kate. She comes to know this, but what she doesn't know and, and doesn't learn until the very end of the story is that uh, Merton and Kate are secretly engaged. They have promised one another to be, to be true and to try to find a way to be married. Millie doesn't know this. So she, Millie arrives in London. Um, her companion, Susan Shepard, and Kate's Aunt Maud are old friends. So Millie is brought into Kate's circle while Merton is still away. And a great friendship springs up between the two young women, the two young women, and we see um, how much they enjoy one another. But what gradually emerges is that Kate has her eye on Millie. Kate learns through Millie's trust in her that Millie is ill, perhaps dangerously ill. And James gradually unfolds for us the growth of this, this notion, this design in Kate's mind, which is that if Millie has a soft spot for Merton Densher, as it seems that she does, if Kate can keep her own engagement to Merton secret, perhaps this attraction, this friendship between Millie and Merton Densher can lead in the long run to something that will be very beneficial for Kate as she sees it. And we learn now about Kate Croy, this person we like upon first meeting. This is an ambitious woman, a woman with designs, and I, and I don't mean drawings or, or, or patterns, but actual kinds of big projects. Absolutely. Well, in a troubling way, she's a little bit like an artist or even a novelist with a sense of a plot that she would like to see played out. Yes, she very much has designs. It's in this context, uh, there's, a, there's a memorable scene at the center of the novel where uh, Kate actually advises Millie to drop her 
as a friend. She says, you may very well come to loathe me. And Millie says, perplexed and, and um, perturbed. And Millie says, why do you say such things to me? And Kate says to Millie, because you're a dove. And that gets us into the title of the work, The Wings of the Dove. Okay, so I, I did want to ask about that. The Wings of the Dove. What on earth does that mean in this book about people? Well, when Kate tells Millie that she's a dove, she means, of course, that you're gentle, you're innocent, you're unsuspecting. And if, as Kate implies, she, you know, she herself, she, Kate, is not. But more, more, perhaps more broadly, the title points to, it's an allusion to Psalm 55, which is a psalm of lament. And I'll just read you a few verses of this psalm. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. And I say, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it, but it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. So, which psalm is that? That's Psalm 55. So, what are we to make of that psalm in this title? There's the expressed wish to, to fly away and be at rest. Um, to, to escape from the terrors of death. And Millie certainly lives under the shadow of the terror of death. Uh, she's a very young woman with a bright future. She has everything that one could hope for except the prospect of a long life. Millie also gradually learns that Kate, her close companion, her dear friend, has in many ways turned against her. Kate proposes an amazing scheme. And what is that? What does she want to do here? What she gradually explains to Merton Densher is that she will keep her own engagement, her own love for Merton, a secret, and she'll allow Merton and Millie to reignite their friendship, to, to grow close again, and if it should happen that Millie is not to live long, then when Millie dies, she will leave Merton Densher all or some part of her fortune in recognition of the significant role he's played in her life, in recognition of her love for him. Then Merton and Kate will be free to marry with money. So this is a giant scam. Yes, it is, and it's it's a it's a shockingly cynical and manipulative one. And here we can think back to the opening scene of the novel where Kate feels duty bound to offer to help her father, who's committed some unnameable, mysterious, dishonorable act. The great, one of the great ironies of this novel is that by its close, Kate herself has committed such an act. Now, the best thing you could say about Kate is, I guess, she's extremely practical, <laughs> but, there's yes. a, but there's, a, there's a real callousness at work here as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. In that sense, she's, well, she's like many of James's villains, I guess you could say. Uh, James always gives, and they're often powerful women, James always gives them a history that helps to engage at least some part of the reader's sympathy. Uh, in, in the opening chapters, we see how desperate Kate is to advance in the world because she feels how far her family has fallen and how little her father can do to help her. So, we have a great deal of sympathy for that, I think. And um, what Kate herself says to Merton Densher regarding her plan is that if Millie's only to live a short time, in effect, um, loving Merton will, will sweeten that time for her. 
Kate, Kate can present her plan as if what she's doing is selfless, uh, is, is a generous gift, if you like, to Millie of the man that she loves. This is an incredible act of kindness, she says, to, 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 to do this to, to Millie. It reminds me of the line that the line that the villain sees himself as the hero of his own story. Kate thinks she's doing something wonderful. At least she convinces herself of this, or does she? Absolutely. I think James portrays her as wanting to believe that she is doing something generous and wonderful. I think he also portrays her as, in many ways, burdened by the weight ultimately of what she has done and it certainly costs her a great deal in the end does millie have a clue does she know what's going on or is she completely innocent that's a fascinating question initially at least she seems perfectly innocent and when it's suggested to her by one of the minor characters that perhaps there's a little bit more to the connection between kate and merton denter than she realizes millie brushes this away um, but as, as the plot unfolds, it seems clear that Millie has more and more evidence to work with, but James does not ultimately reveal to us what Millie thinks or feels. Certainly by the, the, the novel's end, this um, secondary character, his name is Lord Mark, he has gained what he thinks is proof of Kate's engagement to Martin Denture, and he brings this to Millie, and it devastates her. But James does not depict... Millie's response to that news. He only depicts it indirectly through Merton's contact with Millie. And the effect of that is to, well, a couple of things. It makes the whole question that much more kind of mysterious and fascinating. Who is Millie? What does she know? What does she think and feel? This emerges as a kind of provocative riddle for the reader. But it also throws the weight on Merton Denture's response to Millie and his perception of the consequences of what he's done. That's where James draws our attention at the, at the novel's close. Now, Millie is an American, and when she enters the book, she has come to London from the United States, and here we have a big theme in really all of Henry James. It's here in this novel, but it's in other ones as well, of New World versus Old World, United States versus Europe. Is that a major part of the Wings of the Dove. Absolutely, as it is in so many Henry James works. Millie's innocence, her, you know, her dove-like nature is, is very much associated with her American heritage. And what we have in Europe generally, and in Kate and Merton specifically, is the idea of the influence of the past. And it's an influence that isn't always obvious. So for James, the old world, Europe, England, the continent, is a place where the past is present in every detail of daily life, and yet to the American consciousness, the past has a, a presence and a bearing that is very, very little suspected. So, um, just as the New World doesn't always understand the Old World, so too, more specifically, Millie does not understand how much of a secret history there is behind Kate and Merton and their relationship. Part of me wants to interpret Millie Thiel as an innocent American among a bunch of wily Europeans. Is that true or is that only partly true? I'd say it's partly true. One of the one of the complicating factors here is that Merton Denture is kind of a new man. His his profession, journalism connects him with the modern world um, and the present day. And he's also a new man in that he's not wealthy. He doesn't have a very clear place in the English, 
sort of class stratification of classes and he doesn't mind that he he likes being a writer that's what he wants to do that's very modern but kate and uh, behind kate aunt maud and aunt maud would like kate to marry an english peer this is very old world and we like merton don't we he's kind of a good guy there are a lot of qualities about him that are that are favorable does he just wind up being a dupe to kate's ambitions not entirely, although he is perhaps a dupe in, in ways that might strain our sympathy for him early on, um, that we, I think, maintain uh, a sympathy and regard for Merton is one of the masterful things about this novel, because he does some pretty terrible things. Um, he gradually realizes, it dawns on him slowly, intelligent as he is, exactly what Kate has in mind connecting the dots. She's been pushing him this direction, but not spelling out the end of the story, so to speak. And when he realizes, first of all, what she wants of him, and secondly, what this means for Millie, and the effect on Millie of seeing through this deception, he really has a, has a I think, a profound, though it's subtly depicted, a profound transformation, and comes to see his relationship with Kate and with Millie very differently by the novel's close. The novel has two great settings. One is in London, the other is in Venice. We've already talked a little bit about the tensions between New World and Old World. What is the tension between London and Venice in this book? London is a much more modern city, as James depicts it. It's where Merton Denture is a successful journalist. It's a place, uh, a bustling place, where Millie can consult a great physician. Um, characters can meet at the National Gallery. They can wander through Hyde Park. It's, it's a place full of life. Venice is a very different city entirely. Henry James loved Venice. He loved all of Italy. He loved Florence. He loved Rome. But on his last visit to Venice in 1907, he had a great deal of trouble taking leave. I think part of the reason that he loved Venice and part of the reason it's such a significant setting in this novel is that it is a city of almost otherworldly beauty. But it's also a city of physical decay. And Millie dies there. Um, so both of those aspects of Venice are relevant, I think. Um, the water, the light in Venice, intensely beautiful. Uh, the canals make a kind of labyrinth of the city landscape that James uses to great effect to suggest you know, the, way that, the ways that the characters are um, tangled up in their plot and, and not seeing and misunderstanding one another. Venice is a place where carnival uh, is a great thing and masked balls, right? It's a place of artifice and revelry and desire. And it's also in many ways a place associated with death, in part because, of course, the effect of water on these old buildings is, is somewhat um, to, to, to decay them. I mean, they, you, you look at these magnificent structures, and, but you also see uh, how they're kind of gradually sinking and being, being eroded by the water. And so all of those associations are brought into play when James sets the second half of the novel in Venice. A lot of writers are drawn to Venice, at least it seems to me that's the case. And Lorraine, you and I did a show a while back on Death in Venice by Thomas Mann. There's another great novel with a lot of Venice in it. But it seems like a lot of authors take their stories there for the, many of the reasons you just, you just laid out. And I'll note, Henry James 
lived there. He loved the city, obviously, and he lived there uh, with a close friend of his called Constance Fenimore Wilson, an American writer, an expatriate American writer. And we did a great books podcast on her recently, that show number 260. But there's something about Venice that attracts not just tourists, lovely city to visit, but writers. James did some of his best writing in Venice. He wrote the great part of The Portrait of a Lady in Venice. Um, and he had, he had wealthy friends. And he stayed, in fact, many times at the Palazzo Barbaro on the Grand Canal, which is one of the most uh, sort of magnificent structures still standing on, uh, on that canal. Uh, and he sets, um, he sets part of the Wings of the Dove there. Lorraine, who is Constance Fenimore Wilson? She was a great niece of the American writer James Fenimore Cooper, and on her first visit to Italy in 1880, uh, she befriended James. He actually kind of acted as a guide to her as she was getting to know the city of Florence, and she found that, as many people who knew him found, that James was a wonderful resource. You could, you could lean on him. So uh, a, a friendship sprung up between them that lasted many years. They uh, shared a residence in Florence together for a time. They talked about collaborating on a play. She ultimately settled in Venice and died there quite sadly, perhaps taking her own life. But at any rate, she, she fell or threw herself o- over the balcony of, of her palazzo and died. And James was quite shocked and traumatized by her death. The sadness of that may color the way that he uses Venice as a place of death, of mourning in the wings of the dove. It also may be the case that like Merton Densher, as he looks back at this relationship, he sees it more clearly than he did at the time. That is to say that there's a kind of um, clarity in hindsight and a tragic clarity in understanding that perhaps there was a love here that he never fully understood. All right, so let's move into then the Venice part of the plot. What happens? Does Kate Croy get her way? Do Merton and Millie become a thing? Is there an inheritance? How does this play out in the second part of the book? Millie departs London for Venice in in part for her health, or so it would seem, in part to see more of Europe. Ostensibly, she's here to travel and and to to see the old world. Kate and Aunt Maud follow her, and Merton follows as well. Their friendship continues to grow more complicated um, in the weeks that they spend there, but ultimately, Kate and Aunt Maud depart, leaving Merton alone in Venice with Millie. And that's when things really get interesting. That's when Merton realizes exactly what Kate wants of him, and he also realizes exactly how vulnerable and beautiful Millie is. And by beautiful, I mean, of course, he realizes what a beautiful nature she has, how receptive she's been to his friendship and to Kate's. And it's as if all of the implications of the story that he's been living through uh, filter into his consciousness, and he has this great moment of realization and, and really of shock. He, d- he doesn't know what to do or how he can extricate himself from the situation with any degree of honor. He's made a promise to Kate. He's engaged to her. Um, at the same time, he's living a life of, of deception in his relationship with Millie. And this puts him, this makes him acutely uncomfortable. And Millie really is sick. And she, this relationship is doomed. It is doomed. She's sick. She's growing weaker. Lord Mark comes to visit Venice. He tells Millie that Merton and Kate are secretly engaged. 
And at that point, Millie's guardian, Susan Shepard, tells Merton Densher that Millie turns her face to the wall. She grows progressively weaker. Merton sees her one final time. James does not depict this scene. Rather, Merton tells, tells Kate about it and reflects on it later on after he's left Venice. In this final exchange, it would seem that Millie forgives Merton in some unspecified way. He feels that she blesses him and he departs Venice with that blessing. He learns of her death a few weeks afterwards. And she leaves him the money. She leaves him the money. That's amazing, I think. It is. What's even more amazing is what he does with it. She writes him a letter in which presumably she explains her plans. Merton receives the letter, does not open it. He asks Kate to come visit him. He shows her the letter and Kate puts the letter in the fire. A few weeks later, he receives another envelope from Millie's lawyers, her executors. And this, of course, is the announcement of the fortune that she's left him. This, too, he hands to Kate with an ultimatum. He says, I'll marry you and we'll return the money. Or you can have the money, but not me. So that's an incredible choice. Kate's plot has worked, kind of. You know, she, she pulled off the, the relationship and inheritance part of this, but, but Merton's throwing her a curveball at the end. What happens then? Kate accuses Merton of being in love with Millie's memory. She says, I'll marry you without the money if you'll make me a promise, your word of honor that you're not in love with her memory. And Merton can't promise that and Kate turns away he says I'll marry you in a moment I'll marry you in I'll marry you this hour Kate says no it's the end and she utters some words that I think are highly significant she says we shall never be again as we were and the book ends with that the book ends with that it's it's a it's a cliffhanger in a way you almost want another chapter but that is the end That is the end. We shall never be again as we were. It seems to imply a couple of things. It implies that they've lost everything. They've lost their respect for one another. They've lost their love. Kate has played this magnificent game. She says, I want and I will try for everything. But I think what James wants us to see is that they've lost what was most precious, um, which was their their care for one another um, through this deception. I suppose there is a more hopeful way of reading those final lines. when Kate turns away, she seems to be saying, no, I won't, I won't marry you without the money. It seems implied that she will take the money, that the relationship is gone. But perhaps, for Merton at least, to never be again as he has been could be re- read as hopeful, um, as a sign that perhaps he's learned something from this experience. He may have lost Kate, but perhaps he has redeemed his honor in a way that we can regard as significant. So is there a takeaway point here? You know, marry for love, not for money. Money's a curse. What is James telling us? I I do think he's telling us that love is much better than money. And as I said at the opening, I think, um, I think that James has a lot to say about the relationship between the world of matter and material things and the world of the spirit. Um, I think one of the things that makes James a truly great writer is that he tends to portray our inner lives as being intensely and palpably dramatic and he tends to portray the external world in terms of questions of the spirit i think that's that's the magic of henry james and i think that has um 
uh, a lot of application in this particular novel where he seems to be asking to what degree are our closest relationships governed by transitory and temporal and material things. Are we in the heads of these characters? It seems like often we're not. We'd like to know more about them. You just described a scene that that we don't get to even watch. Is that a, is that a frustration with James or th- that he's not telling us everything? I think it can be a frustration, certainly. Um, although it also, I think, engages the reader's fascination. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about James is that he does not portray his characters or people generally as being easy to know. Um, He does not write novels in which the conceit is that everything in our experience of life is likely to be legible and understandable. Instead, he portrays the problem and the mystery of trying to know another person. The interesting thing about Wings of the Dove, we have these three main characters, of course, in this kind of love triangle, and it's like we trace all three sides of that triangle over the course of the novel. We begin with Kate, and she becomes quite kind of endearing to us. In the center of the novel, we have Millie, and we do have her thoughts and feelings portrayed for a time. But once we get to Venice, we're really more in Merton's point of view. And um, it's through his point of view that we close. So what he doesn't know, we don't know. This novel, as I understand it, originally was conceived as a play. Henry James was thinking he would stage this story. Wrote it as a novel, of course. Do Do we hear echoes of the play and stagecraft in this story? James always wanted to be a successful playwright. He loved the theater, and he tried for several years to write plays um, to no avail. Uh, But I think he learned a lot from that attempt, and I do think that um, his ability to craft and write some, some really poignant and striking scenes is part of the fruit of his experience with the theater. This book has been filmed, most notably in a movie from 1997 starring uh, Helena Bonham Carter, who is nominated for Best Actress. Lorraine, is that a good movie? Would Henry James have approved? It is a good movie. Uh, it, it, it received, I think, many awards and a, a good bit of critical acclaim, and I have seen it. I think it's well well staged, well acted, uh, has a beautiful musical score, has a lot going for it. It changes some things, so a total Henry James purist might not like some of the changes that are made. It plays up the sexual drama a little bit in a way that might or might not be to some, uh, some viewers' taste. So with a, a couple of reservations, I would say it's very well done. Where do we fit this novel in the legacy of Henry James? We've done a few shows in the Great Books podcast series on Henry James. This is one of his later novels. It's from 1902. Where does The Wings of the Dove fit in the overall achievement of Henry James? I think it is one of his best, if not his best novel entirely. Um, There's a a trio of three novels. It's not a trilogy, but there are these three late novels that he wrote that are widely considered his, his masterpieces, and they are The Ambassadors, The Wings of the Dove, and The Golden Bull. And um, The Wings of the Dove is, I would say, it's more dramatic, it's more mysterious than the other two. Um, it, it engages more directly with questions of life and death and mortality. So I think it, um, it's a credible contender, really, for his most profound and significant work. You're teaching a course on Henry James right now here at Hillsdale College. What made you want to do a whole course on Henry James? Well, I'll tell you, I first read Henry James as a teenager. I read The Portrait of a Lady, 
and I hated it. <laughs> I didn't understand it at all. But it got under my skin for that very reason, because I got to the end of that novel and I realized I had not understood it. Came back and read Portrait of the Lady again in college, read The Golden Bowl, found that challenging. And it kind of snowballed. I just couldn't stop reading Henry James. And that's why I'm teaching him. I think he has... Um, kind of fallen off the radar a little bit. He's difficult to classify. He's an American writer who lived most of his life in Europe. He straddles the Victorian and the modern eras and is in some ways a kind of a bridge there. And I think in part because he's difficult to classify and in part because he can be difficult to read, um, he's been a bit neglected. But I'm not just on a crusade to... Um, you know, make students read great writers. I honestly am captivated by Henry James. Um, every time I read or reread a work of his, I find more to admire. I found James tough when I was assigned his books in college. How are your students today taking to him? We started with some shorter works like Daisy Miller, and um, he can be very accessible in those formats. Um, as, you, as you follow James through his career, his prose becomes more sort of Baroque and involuted and involved, and his plots can become a little more cerebral. Um, it's often said that nothing happens in a story by Henry James. So I'm trying to build up their strength, if you will, work by work, and we just finished Portrait of a Lady, and they're doing wonderfully. Last question as we wrap up. What is the case then for reading The Wings of the Dove right now? What can it say to us in the 2020s? I think it's a really a very modern story because it is about how in the modern world with all of its pressures, I'm thinking of Merton Densher with his journalism. He wants to be a successful writer. I'm thinking of Kate with her sense that she's got to redeem her family name and raise her social standing. And they're trying to negotiate their lives in this matrix that is exerting all kinds of pressures on the two of them. And their love is under great pressure. I think ultimately in this novel, they do not succeed in protecting it. But I think one of the things that James is calling our attention to is the way in which the modern world distracts us and tempts us away from what is most impalpable but most valuable, um, questions of love and the life of the spirit. So, I, I, I think it's a modern, I hope it's a timeless question, and I think it's always a good time to read The Wings of the Dove. Lorraine Murphy, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. It's been my great pleasure. Thanks, John. You've just listened to The Great Books Podcast, a production of National Review. Please subscribe to The Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com. On Twitter, my handle is at haymiller. Last fall, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.